This morning we're continuing our study of the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 12. How many of you have ever seen the the PBS television show, The Antique Roadshow? Quite a few. I've seen a few episodes uh, throughout the years. I think it's fascinating to to see uh, the response of people when they bring in their treasures to be evaluated. Some have high hopes and their dreams are crushed when they find out it's not worth very much. And others have no idea and they are shocked to find out what it's really worth. And this week in preparation, I came across a blog post by Tim Challies, and he writes about an episode that he observed where a man brings in his item to be evaluated. And this is what Tim writes here. He says, an elderly gentleman from Tucson, Arizona, brought in an old blanket he had inherited several years before. He knew it was old and believed it had a little bit of value, perhaps even a, a few hundred or even a couple thousand dollars value. And after inheriting it, he he threw it over the back of a rocking chair in his bedroom and not thought about it very often until he was presented with the opportunity to take it to the roadshow. And with the blanket hanging on a rack behind them, the expert appraiser told the old man that his heart had stopped when he first saw it. He began to explain just what the blanket was. It was a Navajo chief's blanket that had been woven in the 1840s. Surviving in wonderful condition, it was one of the oldest intact Navajo weaves to survive the 21st century, and certainly one of only a tiny handful to exist outside of a museum collection. He showed the fine detail of the weaving and even showed where it had been torn and repaired shortly after it was first made. You could see the excitement in the eyes as this guy was evaluating, as he looked, that he, he, see, he saw something extremely valuable. He knew that sitting before him was just something more than a blanket. It was a rare national treasure of incredible value. And the appraiser seemed to have trouble even beginning to tell the audience just how important this blanket was. He left no doubt, though, when he told of its value. Because of its rarity and historical significance, he had no trouble assigning a value of somewhere between $350,000 to $500,000. This elderly gentleman had come to a show carrying a blanket worth almost a half million dollars. And this man couldn't, couldn't believe it. Choked up with tears pouring from his eyes, he asked again to hear the amount. It's safe to say that that blanket, as it came in, was probably casually carried into the roadshow to find out. And I'm sure carrying it out was much different. The blanket had not changed at all. It was exactly the same way, the same blanket that it was an hour before. Yet something changed. It was a treasure. It had extreme worth to this man. I wonder what he would do with that treasure. Would it become now a family heirloom, never to be used, never to be sold, passed on one family to the next? We're not told. This morning, as we come to John chapter 12, verse 1, it marks a major transition in this gospel. When we come to John chapter 12, it it begins for us Jesus' last week on earth. It's the last seven days that Jesus spends with the disciples before heading to the cross. It's it's one of the greatest weeks of all time. John 12 begins on that Saturday where, where Jesus now, as we'll see, will eat dinner with Lazarus and his sisters and the disciples. And on Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem and Jesus returns to Jerusalem on Monday and curses the fig tree on the way. 
And on Tuesday is his last public preaching in Jerusalem with him re retreating then to the Mount of Olives and giving the, dis the discourse to the disciples. Wednesday, he stays again in Bethany and then returns to the city on Thursday to observe the Passover with his disciples. And Friday, we know what Friday is. Friday is the day where he's crucified. John will spend the next 10 chapters of his gospel describing in great detail all of the private conversations that Jesus has with the disciples and the events leading up to his death. All of the 10 chapters that we will look at is a span of seven days. But this morning, we're gonna look at a section here in John 12, verses one through 19 that talk about worship. And in this passage, you'll see three different types of people, three different people and how they worship. And I'm gonna read it here. And I want you to, to look, to listen as you see it for these people and the ways that they worship. So look with me in John chapter 12, starting in verse one, and listen for those that are worshiping. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only to, on account of him, who, of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the crowd, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and he had, had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Did you see him there? Did you see the three? The first one I want you to notice as we walk through this passage is the devotion of Mary. Second, you'll see the worship of Judas. And third, you'll notice the idolization of the crowd. Before we dive into these verses, join me in prayer. Father, we come before your throne again and we thank you. We thank you that we can rely upon you this morning. We thank you for your word that teaches us, that guides us and leads us, gives us understanding how to live shows us our sins. 
We thank you for the grace that you continue to give us in our lives. We thank you for the privilege we have to come together as the family of God here this morning to worship you. And now, God, as we continue in our worship, hearing your word preached, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in it. God, I ask that you would speak this morning, that you would be the teacher, that your people would hear from you and learn, and that they would leave changed. We look forward to what you're going to have for us this morning. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want you to see is the devotion of Mary. Remember, Jesus had been staying away from Jerusalem until the time had come, and then he would now, in this chapter, enter dramatically. In John 11, something very significant happened, right? Last week, we we covered a very important story. Lazarus, after being dead and in the tomb for four days, was raised to life again by Jesus. And in those moments, Jesus displays for all that were present that he had power over death, and he had power to bring life. And I'm, I'm sure the family was ecstatic to have Lazarus back. And in celebration of the miracle, they sit down to have a meal together. They have a banquet dinner, as John writes. In verse 3 there, let me read it again for you. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This Verse stands out as one of the most beautiful scenes from the life of Jesus. Mary kneeling before her Lord, pouring out the most prized possession that she had, anointing her Savior. And she displays her devotion here in some extreme and monumental ways. First, notice she has an undaunting devotion towards Jesus. If you remember at the end of chapter 11, it ended with a threat, not only made to Jesus, but but made to all of his followers that if they knew where Jesus was, they were to turn him in so that they might arrest him. So I'm sure if you'd spend any time with Jesus and then fail to turn him in, you would be accused as an accessory to this crime as they saw it. And yet here in chapter 12, they're they're openly having a dinner. I'm sure celebrating what, what had just transpired. And you also, as you See, in this chapter, it wasn't just Jesus that was a threat of the people. No, Lazarus was in danger too. He's in hot water. He's going, he's, they want to kill him because he came back to life after being dead. It says in verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. They wanted to eliminate Lazarus. They got to snuff him out. Because he's evidence now. He's evidence of Jesus' power. But regardless, they, they meet. And, and Mary and Martha, who loves to serve, and Lazarus and the disciples, they show courage by meeting together for this meal. And the second thing you notice here in her devotion is her, the cost. It's a costly devotion for Mary. John writes that Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. This was expensive stuff. Let me explain to you why. Nard was a rare and precious spice that was imported from northern India. And the Latin writer Pilney gives us a a full and great description of the spice. He says, nard is a shrub whose leaves and shoots were harvested and taken by caravan to the west. And sometimes it was mixed with its own root to increase its weight. But Mary's gift was called pure nard, meaning it was 
having no additives. This stuff was like gold to them. So how much did this item cost Mary? Well, Judas gives us some details here. He's angry about it. Verse five, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? Most, most common laborers received a denarii for one day's wage. So this perfume almost equaled a year's worth of wages. So we translate that to today's terms. If you work a minimum wage job, the current minimum wage of $7.25 an hour, you would receive $44 after tax per day. And so 300 denarii would be equivalent to $13,200 at the low end. Imagine that. Could be up to 20, could be up to 30, could be $40,000. That's a lot of money. This bottle of perfume was probably a family heirloom passed from one generation to the next. In a matter of minutes, Mary breaks open the top and pours that on Jesus. Mary's devotion to Jesus was costly and she delighted to give it. She thought not of herself, but for the love she had for her Lord. And thinking nothing of herself, she found her great delight in giving her very best to her Savior. I don't know about you, but this challenges me. What cost is too high for me to give to God? What is our most prized possession? Is it your savings account? If so, then give sacrificially out of your abundance because of your love for Jesus. Spurgeon said, our gifts are not to be measured by the amount we contribute, but by the surplus kept in our own hand. We often look at the gift and think how great it is, but God looks to see what's left. It stings, doesn't it? Maybe it's your time or skill. You should maybe reorder your life so that you can give more of your time and skill to serve others, whether here in the church or in your community. Maybe it's your life. That's your prized possession. I encourage you to give it to Jesus. Go where he leads you. Give up the pursuit of the American dream. It's only a mirage. And serve God, regardless of where he takes you. And this is monumental because many believe that their calling is, has to be to make a living here in America. And I believe many should. But if you consider the fact that God may be wanting you to leave that and go serve him where he calls. But maybe, maybe your, uh, your, your greatest, most prized possession is your kids. You have big dreams for your kids. High expectations on them. Is serving God one of those expectations? Are you holding back your son or daughter out of fear where God might take them? What is your most prized possession? You know, we're just a few weeks away from celebrating Christmas. I love this holiday. I love all that it entails. I love remembering what this day means, the decorations, the traditions. I look forward to it every year. I love giving gifts. You know, as a kid, I was one of those kids that loved receiving gifts. And I was quite critical, my poor mom. Never quite got it right to my standards. 
and that shifted dramatically, praise the Lord, to anxiously wanting to give gifts to others. For me, I look forward to give gifts at Christmas time. Many of you are maybe in the same position. And in Christmas, sometimes we give very costly gifts, whether it's our time or energy to make the gift or to find it or our savings to purchase it. We love to give costly gifts. Right, Joe? Aren't you building a dining room table for your wife? Does she know that? She does. <laughs> costly gifts. We love to do that. And so I ask, as the church, what costly gift can we give to Jesus? And we always run to money, but that's not all. God doesn't need our money. He owns it all. Maybe he's expecting us, our time, or our kids, our stuff. Utilize it to serve him. You know, if we have Jesus, we have everything that we really ever need. And sometimes we have to let go of other things to recognize again the preciousness of Jesus Christ. Mary teaches me this morning. It's truly better to give than to receive. And so she shows us her undaunting devotion in the midst of the hostility there. And she shows a courageous devotion and, and a meek devotion. It was a very costly decision, but meek. She kneels down with her expensive perfume and anoints the feet of Jesus. And during this time of period, what's happening here is very common for people not to bathe very frequently. It was very hot and dry. And a host would, would place a dab of oil on the guest's head. But Mary takes it to a whole other level with her Lord. While Jesus reclines at the table with his legs extended outward, Mary proceeds to anoint not only Jesus' head, but his feet. And this is significant because it was considered beneath people to wash the feet of others. Even slaves had rights. And one of the rights for slaves was not being forced to wash the feet of their masters. But Mary here doesn't hesitate to humble, her, humble herself in devotion to her Savior. This is an extremely humble act of service. She not only anoints him, but wipes his feet with her hair. I'm sure the people around the dinner look on it with amazement as she begins to anoint him, but then it turned to shock when she unfolds her hair and wipes his feet. One thing to mention, it was scandalous for a woman to let down her hair in public. In fact, if a married woman did this, she could be divorced by her husband. If a single woman did this, she could be stoned. For a woman to let down her hair expressed intimacy and openness and servant love, and it was done in the privacy of her home around close family members. So when Mary does this for Jesus, she's communicating that she's fully surrendered to her Lord. She felt completely safe in his holy presence. She saw him as her Lord. So Mary's act of service for Jesus was significant. And all those that are seated are observing what true devotion, what, what real sacrifice looks like for a believer. And she's our example. She's our example of what devotion looks like in this passage of worship. The second example is very opposite of Mary. 
So we saw the devotion of Mary as she worships Jesus. Second is the worship of Judas. You know, there's two ways to view what Mary does for Jesus. The first is what I've covered. It's to look at it with appreciation, the desire to, to emulate it, to do the same. The second way is to respond with disgust. This is what we see with Judas. Genuine devotion to Christ will seldom go unchallenged in this world. And this is the same for Mary. Verse four, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This is the challenge that is made against the devotion of those who desire to serve Christ. It is better, they argue, to do something practical instead of worshiping God. You know, there are many in this world today that quote Judas and don't even realize it. When they look down upon those that desire to give out of worship to God and say, well, why did you do that? We have so many poor people. And in, that, in their words, they're, they're putting down the worship of God. And there's a balance here that Jesus highlights for us in verse seven and eight. He says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. You always have work to do, he says, but don't neglect worship. Don't put off worship. Unfortunately, Jesus does not understand worshiping God, but don't be fooled, he understands worship. He's good at it. In fact, everyone seated here this morning understands worship. You're good at it. You're, you're built to worship, all of us. We're born as worshipers. I was reading an interesting book a few years ago called uh, We Become What We Worship. It was an academic book that looked at the study of idolatry. And in the book, the author says the main point of the study is this. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. He argues that we were made to bear the image of another and that we become the image of what we worship, either our creator or something in the creation. And he cites Psalm 115 as one of the clearest examples of this. And the focus of the psalm is on the deliberate construction of the silver, gold, and other materials into a god to be worshiped. And the psalmist looks at the statues and sees what looks like a mouth and eyes and ears and nose and hands and feet. But they have no function. None of these things are working. They don't speak, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't smell, they can't do anything. They can't speak truth to us, they can't hear our prayers, they can't understand the situation, they can't enjoy the worship, they can't come to our aid, they can't give life. And the impact of this idol on those who worship them, it says those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. It's not that these idolaters lose their physical senses of speech and sight. Rather, it's a description of the idolater's soul and spirit. It's lifeless, it's senseless, like the idols that they worship. They're spiritually dumb. They're blind and deaf and powerless and breathless. And they become what they worship. Judas is worshiping here. 
What does he worship? He worships security. He worships money. He worships having enough. He worships safety. John teaches us who Judas really is. In verse six, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas was the type of guy who has his mind on money all the time. He views everything in life from the aspect of financial value. Do you know what I mean by that? You, you drive around and say, I see a car, but I don't. I just see a price tag. I know how much that costs. When I see that chair, it's 70 bucks. Live life, everything's just a, a price tag, a value. And Judas has proven himself to be the hypocrite. Mary's devotion offended Judas because his focus in religion was on getting his own. And when she broke that bottle that he realized how much it was worth to anoint Jesus, all he saw was money being poured on the floor. Money that he could have had a portion of. He could have siphoned off 10, 15, 20%. You know, Mary and Judas are extreme contrast in treasuring. They both had some pleasure-seeking motives. Neither of them acted in a way of tolerance, but both acted in a way that would make them happy. To Mary, Jesus was priceless. And she loved him more than anything in this world. She gave away her most prized possession. To Judas, Jesus was just a man. He's looking for his happiness and money and safety and security. For Judas, as you'll see later in this gospel, 30 pieces of silver were just about enough for Jesus. Judas's sin wasn't that he was hunting happiness in life. His sin was believing that having money would make him happier than having Christ. And what a horrible miscalculation it was for Judas. And here was a man, Jesus, worth more than the entire universe. And you see him, and you hear him, and you interact with him. And all you see as the perfume is dumped out is just a waste of money. He's bothered by a year's wages. Instead, he should be bothered by squandering eternal life the treasure of Jesus Christ. You know, Matthew 13 has an overflow of parables. If you're reading, you can see all of them listed out there. But one sticks out this morning that teaches us in verses 44 through 46. And I want to read it to you, so just listen here. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The Puritans, I love the Puritans. I have a whole shelf of Puritan writings. I enjoy reading them 
I'll pull them off the shelf and I'll tell Madeline, do you know when this one was written? 1640. I think it's amazing to see the years that those books are written and they very prevalent for today. And the, and the, the Puritans had issues, they're human, but one issue they didn't have was, was the fear of commitment. It was not part of the Puritan understanding. There was no commitment phobia for them. And the Puritans would talk about this passage and they would constantly think of this passage, would ask people, have you bought the pearl? Have you bought the pearl? Ask that of your coworkers this week and see what happens, okay? Have you bought the pearl? And what they mean is simply the man who looks and sees a treasure in a field with joy sells everything he has to buy that field, sells everything he has to buy that pearl. Because he, he knows that what he gets for stripping away of all his wealth is a tremendous deal. Have I got a deal for you? You know, I can hear it. This is what it is. This is the response. He knows that there is nothing he has in his possession that's even worth the wrapping paper of this great treasure. And he says in response, I get this treasure and all I have to do is give everything I own? That's it? I can do that. What if you actually found a field here in Edgewood and it had an oil well in it? And you knew oil. You, you, you asked a friend who knew the business and they said, yeah. And you say, I have to have that field. It's worth millions, actually. I don't have millions now. And you, and you decide to sell everything. First, your family is going to think you're crazy and want to commit you. But you know. You know that is worth Everything. You would, you, would, you would get rid of everything. You would liquidate everything to buy that field. You'd say, I'd do it. I paid the whole thing. You wouldn't even think twice about it. That is what Jesus is saying in these parables. Have you actually seen the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ? He's worth more than anything you have. And somebody, if they were to follow you around, could they tell that you bought the pearl? Could they, could they see it? They hear it in your words, in your life? I want to ask you something. I know there are a lot of people in this room that say you're a Christian. You profess to be a Christian. Do you act like what you have inside of you is the most precious thing in the world? Does your life exude this? I'm not saying do you go around and, and preach in the street corner. I'm not saying that. Some do and praise the Lord they do. I'm saying does your life, does it exemplify this? That you found this pearl. You have Jesus Christ. You have the most precious thing the world has ever seen. You have God living inside of you. Think about that. There's nothing worth more than Jesus. Maybe you just won't say this out loud. Maybe you think it, you hear your heart saying something, you know, as a Christian, I, I know I can't do that. 
As a Christian, I, I really shouldn't do that. As a Christian, I really ought not to be doing that. Why is it hard to be a Christian? And you forget what you have inside of you. You forget what you are part of. You, re- you walk around not realizing that all the stuff that looks like an incredible price to pay is nothing. It's, it's nothing. This is, this is the process of becoming an unbeliever and a believer. You see and with joy you go out and you sell everything. You get rid of everything because you see how precious Jesus is. Nothing in this world is more, more than Jesus. This is what we see here. We see Mary taking the most prized possession and giving it in worship. It's not worth it to her. It's not, not worth more than Jesus. She'd probably laugh at that question. It's not worth more than Jesus. It's just perfume. He's worth more, so much more. And then we have Judas who can't handle it. What about you, my friend? Are you Mary or Judas? So we've seen the the devotion of Mary, the worship of Judas, and third is the idolization of the crowd. And when we come to verse 12, we come to a new day. Another day closer to the death of Jesus. It's Sunday exactly one week before the resurrection. It says Palm Sunday. And Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the Passover in his third year of ministry. And this is called the triumphal entry by commentators. And this event is one of the few events that is captured by all four of the gospel accounts. Yet it's probably one of the most misunderstood events. If you remember just a few chapters before, Jesus had withdrawn from the public eye And in just a matter of days, he is thrusted back in the light with Lazarus' miracle. But many people think that Jesus is now entering the the fanfare that's coming as the Messiah. And that it's his last ditch effort to draw more people to himself. But that's not what's happening here. Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem to garner a public approval. Instead, Jesus comes into the city to go with the leaders of the Jewish Sanhedrin to act on their wicked plans. Remember, God is always in control. God is sovereign, even in the plans of wicked men. He knows what's about to happen, and he's beginning the process. He pushed the first domino of what's going to transpire. In verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And J.C. Ryle writes, the time had come at last when Christ was to die for the sins of the world. The time had come when the true Passover lamb was to be slain, when the true blood of the atonement was to be shed, when Messiah was to be cut off according to the prophecy, when the way into the holiest was to be opened by the true high priest to all mankind. And knowing this, he placed himself prominently under the notice of the whole Jewish nation. He died in a week 
when by his remarkable public entry into Jerusalem, he had caused the eyes of all Israel to be specifically fixed upon himself. Jesus sets things in motion. It's a very large crowd, he says in this passage, probably made up of pilgrims who have come to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Josephus describes one Passover just before the Jewish war in 66 AD, and he said there was approximately 2.7 million people taking part of this, not even counting the defiled and the foreigners who were present in the city. So even if his numbers are, are inflated, the crowds were undoubtedly huge, bigger than any Seahawk parade after they win. Much more important. And what were the people wanting? What were they there for? They wanted their king. They had heard about this Jesus and the rumor mill is churning out more and more information. This man who had raised Lazarus from the dead. They wanted this king. What does a king look like? What is kingliness? We don't understand this as much and, and have the opportunity to understand this in our country, to see and understand what a king is. We don't understand the, the prestige, the pomp, the, the, the magnificence of a kingdom. Recently, my wife and I have been hooked on a Netflix show, The Crown, which follows the rise of Queen Elizabeth following the death of her father, King George. Great show. And the show displays for us a struggle it is for the royalty to weigh the balance between real life and perceived life. The battle between what others want you and what want you to do. They want the ideal queen. They want someone that's going to be a righteous ruler. Or also someone who's willing to, to fight and to do. And everyone wanted the ideal queen. And in our world, we're begging for the ideal king. And we run after one king to the next. Looking for that one. We're always disappointed. John says they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And the name of Jesus was practically on everyone's tongue. And they, they come and they see Jesus entering the city and they cry out, Hosanna. And they pick up their palm branches and begin to wave them. But why palm branches? Well, the answer is that the palm branch had been a symbol of Jewish nationalism for 200 years. And when Simon drove out the Syrians of Jerusalem and restored the temple 150 years earlier, he was announced and brought into the city by waving palms. And during the wars of the Jewish rebellion, a generation after Jesus, coins were made with, a, with an image of palm branches. The, the palms were a symbol of the Jews conquering and so they stand there with their palm branches, waving them, thinking, hoping, expecting that Jesus is coming to conquer Rome. And this is further reinforced by, by what they're shouting. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna means save us now. Save us now. And it comes from Psalm 118, which was sung during the Passover feast. And these words were, were, were sung as a fight song for the nation. 
And this is the spirit of the people as they, they welcome their, their conqueror. And they even add that he is the king of Israel. We do the same thing in our world. You know, as Britons hail their monarch, God save the queen. Americans greet their president, hail to the chief. And Jews welcome Jesus with Hosanna from Psalm 118. And they're running after their king. They're, they're looking for this conqueror to come and they're quickly shocked. The king doesn't come into the city as a strong warrior. There's a struggle here. You see in this passage, he came, came a chapter before in power, raising a man from, from death. And now he comes in lowliness. And he specifically went out to get a donkey's colt, a very weak and, and humble animal. Why? Because Jesus specifically was going to fulfill the prophecy written by Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9. It's not written out completely in this passage, but it, this is what it says. Behold, your king comes meek and lowly and riding on an ass's colt. So for years, rabbis and, and students of the Old Testament tried to understand this prophecy. How, how can the Messiah come riding on a lowly colt? I mean, isn't that the same issue and struggle they have at Christmas? He came as a baby? A lowly little baby? You know, if he's going to liberate us from everything that enslaves us, how could he, how could he come as a, a meek and, and nice guy riding on a donkey? How can this work? And here is what Jesus is saying to that notion. He's saying, listen, guys, if, if I just came to liberate you from the Roman rule, what good would that be? You'd still die. You'd still have guilt. You'd still have a problem of a meaningless existence. He, he's saying, I can come to overcome the political oppression, but what about your personal oppression? He's, he's come to deliver you from something far more enslaving than the Romans. I've come to deliver you from death. I don't come with political clout. I come with lowliness. I come in weakness. And I come to die in your place. I've come to take your place. I've come to take your punishment. To deal with sin once and for all. I'm going to deal with that. You need me to deal with sin. They're very saying, don't, don't get caught up with the pomp, the power. My triumph is my weakness. I am a lion and a lamb. Jesus is saying, I, I'm so strong, I will put my head down on the chopping block where your head ought to go. John Stott says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. We try to claim the rights that belong to God, and he accepts the penalties that belong to us. Do you want this king? Do you really want this king in your life? In just a couple weeks, we'll join together as the family of God here on Christmas Day, and we'll celebrate the king. 
celebrate the king that came as a baby. But not everyone wants this king. People want the holiday. They want Christmas, but they don't want the king. And they know things that aren't right. But this change seems too much. I remember when I was a kid, there was an ice cream shop in the town. And it was right across the, the fields where I would play Little League softball. Uh, sorry, I played baseball. Girls play softball. <laughs> I didn't play it well, but... Every summer we'd have games and this ice cream shop was right across the street. And we would go after the game and we would enjoy it. It was a, a clean ice cream shop and had a good selection. You get bubblegum ice cream. You guys know what bubblegum ice cream is? All right, good. Whew. And then a, a couple years into it, it was sold. And a new owners came in and it was bad management. It wasn't clean. Didn't enjoy it to go. And even as a kid, I, I remember thinking, I want to go back. I remember the old, I, I liked it before. I want to go back to the way it was. It was enjoyable. Life is that way. The best times are gone like that. The best relationships and friendships only happen for a little while and then they fade. Life goes like that. Our looks and our body is fading. They're decaying. We have new aches and pains every day. Our bodies are decaying. They're not getting better. It's going the other way. You know, a flower today becomes a manure pile tomorrow. And don't you long for something infinitely more? Infinitely more than what we have here? Or are you satisfied? You're satisfied with the way life is. Recognizing that it's under Bad management. Have you ever found yourself saying, I guess this is the best it's going to get? Oh. Have you ever longed for a place where instead of decay, things never get old? In fact, they get newer and stronger and richer and brighter. Every day, every moment, increasing in that way. Forever. A place where things get more whole, more coherent, more vivid, and it lasts forever. Are you looking for that? Do you long for that? It's only found in this king. He's the one you seek. This is Jesus. You know, the last remark, the final words of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was made to serve the glory of Christ. It ends here in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the, the world has gone after him. And how profound these words have become. Jesus had come not just to rescue a small Jewish nation. He came to rescue all of his people from their sins, people from every tribe every nation, every tongue. And Jesus is not finished. He's not done. You know, in this passage here, he rides in lowly and meek on a donkey. But when he comes back, 
And Revelation says it's, it's on a horse for war. He is our king, our conqueror. Jesus leads all of his disciples to moments like, like he does here with Mary and Judas. And when choices we make, not words we say, reveal the treasures that we have. And these moments are designed to make us count the cost. He says here, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And these moments force us to choose what we really believe is gain, whether we value Jesus or we value stuff. If we choose Jesus, we hear in Judah's objection, the world's judgment on us. And they, and they watch us as we pour out valuable time and we, and we pour out our intellects and our money and our youth and our financial futures and our, our vocations and we pour them out on Jesus' feet and they, and they mock us. And they watch as they puddle in bowls. But what we see in that is churches being built. Gospel going forth. Orphanages, homes where children come and are raised to love God and serve him. And all the world sees, all the Judases see is foolish waste. We should expect the rebuke, not the respect. They don't get it. And Jesus wants you to waste your life like Mary wasted her perfume. Changes that definition pretty quick. It's no true waste at all. It's true worship. A poured out life of love for Jesus that counts worldly gain as lost and displays how precious he really is. It preaches to a bewildered and scornful world that Christ is gain and the real waste is gaining the world's perfumes while losing your soul in the process. Are you wasting your life? Or are you hold on to it? Hoard it? Going to keep it? He wants us to pour it out. Jesus Christ cannot be known apart from an absolute commitment. He cannot be known any other way. Jesus Christ cannot be sampled. You cannot have one leg in and one leg out. Jesus Christ cannot be known with a money-back guarantee trial. It's all or nothing. He is known through absolute commitment. And I want to be clear, this doesn't mean Jesus Christ can only be known through absolute obedience. You won't be able to do it. You will fail, you will break, you will, you will not obey perfectly. You can't be perfect in obedience. And the gospel that saved you is the same gospel that keeps you. It's not a gospel of performance. You're saved through the work of Jesus Christ and him alone. He substituted himself for us. He died for us. His record becomes our record. His righteousness because of, becomes ours. I pray that as a church, whatever the prized possession is, we're willing to give it in worship to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. 
God, I thank you for the challenge of your word. I pray that your word in this short period, in these short number of verses, will sink deep into our soul, will impact us. I pray that we could be worshipers like Mary. And I wonder, God, as it says in your word, as she anointed Jesus, that the perfume filled the house. And you have a way, God, of, of making us to, and utilizing our senses that they, they see what Mary does in worship and they can smell. They smell this perfume. And I wonder if, as this week went on with Jesus, that they could still smell the remnants of this perfume. As he was arrested and questioned, as he hung on the cross. The smell of the perfume wafting down. And the memories flooding their minds of the worship of who Jesus is. And I wonder even, God, that when your son rose again and sees Mary for the first time that she could smell the perfume on him. And she can realize it was worth it all. It was not too high a price to pay at all. God, I pray that we can have the same response in our lives. With all that you've given to us, God, may we worship you and give it back. That we don't hold any prized possession at a higher level than we hold you. God, help us to leave this place and to go into this world and to share this glorious gospel that with those that we come in contact with. Help us not to hoard it to ourselves, God. Help us to give it out out of love and adoration, out of worship. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen.